And uh, so we're going to start in, uh, we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 24. So let's go there together. And we are going to continue our walk through Matthew 24. We are talking about and studying the second coming of Christ. We've discussed the prophetic view of what the Old Testament scriptures have taught about the second coming of Christ. We've talked about progressive revelation and how God gives information. Uh, uh, just generally speaking, as a general rule, He gives information a little bit at a time rather than front-loading it all to us at once. And then, um, and so we've looked at the Old Testament. We're into the New Testament. We've looked at a couple of passages in Matthew where the Lord, during His uh, life on earth, uh, started to give information about the future things. And of course, we pay close attention to the the immediate context in which the Lord speaks because that informs us as to uh, the time period that He's referring to. Uh, I, and we're going to see more of that in just, in just a little bit. But I don't want to spend, uh, I don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the nitty-gritty details of like the tribulation. But I, I do want to... Um, I do want to kind of hit on the high points of the kind of the conditions and some of the major events just in passing uh, so that we can get to, get to uh, the rest of our study on the coming of the Lord. So in Matthew 24, we will, I'll start reading in verse 1 just as a matter of review, and then we will continue our study uh, in Matthew 24. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, for the people uh, that are here this morning and the people that are listening in. Thank you, Lord, for the strength you've given them to be here. They are your people. And we have gathered together in your name here this morning on this Father's Day to remember and to acknowledge and worship our Heavenly Father. Lord, thank you for what you've done in each person's lives here. And uh, we do pray that that the Word of God will be precious to each one of us as we, as, we, uh, as we dive into it, as we examine it, as we meditate upon it together. I pray, Lord, through Your Spirit that You would speak to each and every person here and stir us up and teach us the things we need to know because, Lord, You know that we're ignorant except that You instruct us. And we know that we have the instructor, we have the teacher in, in us, in the person of the Spirit of God. So, Lord... Stir up your people, encourage them, strengthen them through our lesson today, we pray, and give us guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew 24 and verse 1. Remember the key to Matthew 24, one of the keys of Matthew 24. Okay, let me just back up here and just say this because we're going to talk about this later. Be very careful when you read the Bible that you don't fall into the... Uh, the, the trap of reading something and because it sounds familiar or it sounds like something might, maybe you've heard before, to just assume that because it sounds similar, it must be the same. Matthew 24 is the, the case and point of this thing. Many things in Matthew 24, you read through there in, uh, in just in haste, and some of the language is, is sounds familiar to things that we're familiar with and we talk about a lot, which is good. But just because it sounds the same doesn't necessarily mean it is the same. And the way that you can tell the difference is by 
reading the context. They always say context is king, right? Context is king. And of course, in the context, you know, listen, context is not, not just for people who preach or teach. Context is what is required to, to understand what you're reading and what is being spoken of. And of course, you, in, the, in the context you have, if you're looking at this verse, you have the immediate context, that which is immediately before and after it, and then you kind of have it, and it goes out from there as broader and broader context, maybe the, the subject matter. Like in Matthew 24, the questions at the beginning of the chapter are the kind of the broader context of the, the subject that the Lord is, is talking about. And then you go even further out than that, the, the greater context to that is the time period in the Lord's life what other things he said on the subject of the coming of the Lord, and so on. But the way, I mean, listen, this is, God gave us a written Bible, right? And the way that you understand written documents, I always refer to Mrs. Aguilar, for some reason you're stuck in my head, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But the way we understand language is by context. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, many words in Cambodian the only way that you can understand what, what is being referred to is by the context. And uh, like they could just say, you could just say one word. And one word standing alone, like if you were to say, for instance, if you were to say in Cambodian, you were to say tho. Tho means go. And standing alone, it doesn't make much sense. But if you were to say it in a context, like you would, like you would say, tainit jong tho psai. And that would be, do you want to go to the market? And the answer would be, though, go. But the only way that makes sense is in the context. So that's the way we deal with the Bible. We read it in context. So if you, if you get to a place where you're stuck and you're saying, well, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, stop and review the context because that will help you. And listen, few things are as discouraging in your walk with the Lord as reading the Bible and not getting thing, anything out of it because you, you're lost in it. And so our goal is to slow down, right? Slow down. And I, I listen to Pastor Stewart when he sometimes, he'll be reading his Bible in the office when I'm here, and he'll be reading it, and you can tell he's reading it slowly. You can tell he's reading it really slowly because he stops and he'll make comments about what he's reading as he goes. That tells you he's kind of meditating as he goes. And that's what that's the kind of thing that helps us understand and, that, and helps us kind of get what, what we need out of it. All right, I got on this tangent here. Matthew 24, verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. I thought, were, I thought we were about to be abducted. That was awesome. It's, it's okay, it's okay. Context, yeah, it was just no context. Now, if we looked at one of our lights and we had just looked at our lights, we would think we might, might be abducted because they look kind of like UFOs. That's what I call them, the UFO lights. Matthew 24, verse, one, verse 2, And Jesus said unto them, see, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Of course, the Lord is referring to something future. This event actually happens when, the, when talking about the destruction of the temple happened in 70 A.D. by Titus. Titus, who would end up being, he was a general at that time, he would end up being the emperor of Rome. Correct. So that's a, 
That's a, and that gives us a, a greater understanding of the context. Remember, when is that spoken? It's spoken, the Lord speaks this about the temple before, in other words, the temple is still standing in his day. But from our perspective, it's past. That's part of the context. And you have to be able to identify, we all have to be able to identify that where these things, these statements are made and follow the words and, and pay attention to the grammar so that it, it'll help us understand when the Lord is talking about. Because this, of course, we know Matthew 24, it gets, it gets pretty deep. Verse number three, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be? What are these things that they're asking about in the context? What are these things? It's talking about the destruction of the temple, okay? But there's more context as it's developed they, they're, because their question was not just singular. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Three questions. So you notice how apparently in the disciples' mind, the destruction of the temple was associated with the end of the world. And we know that historically, that's not the case. But we also know that, that prophetically, the temple does have a major part to play prophetically. And we're going to get into that later, not this week, but uh, maybe next week we'll get into that about the, the relationship of the temple um, and how that relates to things prophetically in the coming of the Lord. And then, uh, and the, the signs of, the, of thy coming and of the end of the world. And so, just as a simple outline, I think I mentioned this last time, but just really quick. Verses 5 in Matthew 24, verses 5 through 14, describe the beginning of sorrows. That's where we're going to start. That's where we're going to talk today. And then verses 15 through 28 talks about the great tribulation. I'm not pulling these words out of thin air. Jesus says, great tribulation. He describes the events that happened during that time. And then in verse 29 through 35, he describes the actual event that is the coming of the Lord, his second advent. And so that's, how, that's a rough outline from verse 5, verses 5 to verse 35. It's basically divided into three chronological sections. And why do we, why do we say this? Again, it's all about context. It's all about the grammar. There are words in the text that we'll see together that tell us when these sections and these periods start and stop because he uses words that indicate a time shift, okay? So let's read in verse number five, uh, verse four rather. And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ." and shall deceive many. Now, can any of you give an example of someone who has made this, this claim? They do exist. They do exist. People come and they say, they actually identify themselves as Christ. Or you might, to, if you want to be more broadly, not they say, maybe not they, they say they are Jesus, but sometimes they'll say, I am the anointed. I am the one that was promised. Kind of like that, because that's what the word Christ means, obviously. 
So when that, I know there's, as an example, there's a, uh, there's a cult that originated in Korea that is called, Mrs. Stewart, I'm sure has probably heard of this. It's called, in English, it's called the World Mission Society Church of God. And uh, I, again, I don't know how to say the name in Korean, obviously. But the man who founded it, in Cambodian at least, which is, must be similar, his name is An Sang Hong. And he claimed that he was like, he was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That he was born as Jesus, like Jesus was the first time, but the second time. And then, of course, there's another person in that group that says that she's the Holy Spirit. But, of course, that, my, my, my daughter who works at Belk, she has actually had people approach her to evangelize her from this, from this cult. So th- these kinds of people that claim that they are Christ do exist, do exist. But really, th- th- this has a greater application to the time of the tribulation. But, um, but anyhow, let's keep reading so we don't uh, get too bogged down. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that ye be not troubled. That's funny. Wars and rumors of wars, see that ye be not troubled. Now notice the time word, okay, in this verse. For all these things must come to pass, what? But the end is not yet. See, that's how we know that this section we're reading is not, these are not signs proper. Okay? These are not signs proper. Now, let's keep reading, and then I'll explain that. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be uh, famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And then what's the first word in verse 9? Then, that's a time word, right? That's a time word. That's a transition. So what is being described in verses 4 through verse number 7, or verse number 8? You have mentions of deception. You have mentions of wars and rumors of wars. You have mentions of conflict, conflict of nations, you have, mentioned, you have mentions of famines and pestilences. What's a pestilence? That's a word we don't use too often, but you, you have to know what that word means, especially in our time. What is a pestilence? Say again? It, it's a sickness. Hello, what's the past two years of our life, right? And earthquakes in diverse places. But notice, the, notice what I want you to see is the plural words. Notice what it says. Wars, rumors, notice they all have the S. Uh, It says nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It says famines, plural, pestilences, plural, earthquakes, plurals, diverse places, plural. Here's what this is being described. I just want to make a a, a slight um, distinction between a sign and a condition. Because the Lord does talk about signs. In this, but actually, this is not the section that he's talking about signs. Notice, go back up to verse number, verse number uh, three. 
the disciples ask him, tell us what shall these, when shall these things be and what shall be what? What does it say? The sign, that's singular, of thy coming. And the Lord's going to give them a sign of his coming. He's going to give them a sign of his coming. But what's being described here are not signs. Here's the difference. A sign is a clear and specific signal that an event is imminent. Imminent. It is upon us. Right? I mean, uh, last week I talked about a sign, like a road sign. That's probably the most common word we use. A road sign that says, you know, for instance, it says, you know, uh, curve ahead. You know, you see those, those amber-colored uh, diamond-shaped signs. That, that is not, that, that is a sign, and it's, it's because it is specific to that moment, and you know that imminently, within seconds, you're going to be at the place where there could be, there could be danger. So that sign is something that's clear and specific. Now, there are signs. In fact, when you get, especially when you get to the book of Revelation, there are many signs that are unambiguous, that they're singular, and they, they mark a specific event that's going to happen. But what we're reading in verse 4 through 8 are not signs, but conditions. I, that's my word, conditions. Why, why do I say that? Well, ask yourself. Deceivers. Have deceivers existed since Christianity was founded? Since the Lord died on the cross? And then, especially in the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, in the very book of Acts, we see deceivers. And then have not wars between nations been a continual thing? I mean, you, I mean go through history. Who, who here likes history? I know Joseph likes it. I mean, you talk about the 30 years war, the 100 years war, and that's just recent history. You go back in the Middle Ages and there was war. I mean, all they did was fight. All those wars uh, over the Holy Land during the, the conquests of uh, the Crusades and before that, the, the conquests of Islam. And then you got, you know, there's just all kinds of wars that have happened throughout the last 2,000 years. So war is not a specific sign. Right? It's not a specific sign. And then you go into, and then in verse number 7, it says famines. Famines have existed forever. Right? Pestilences. Probably the greatest pestilence in history that we're aware of was the bubonic plague. It killed like a third of Europe. And that's a pretty big pestilence. Right? You know, you think of COVID-19 and how... How many people have died? You probably know somebody who's died from COVID-19. I know people who have died from COVID-19. I'm going to turn off this. Uh... It can, it's blowing on the microphone. I can hear it. So you, you know people that died from COVID-19, but comparatively... Few people have died from COVID-19 compared to other pestilences that have come. But, but here's the thing I want you to see. The fact of a pestilence is not something new or clear or specific. Those have existed to various degrees. Malaria. I, I, read a, I saw a statistic or a video that took, they said, you know, they estimate that there have been 100, 100 billion people that lived on earth. Now, I know that's probably an evolutionary number. But they say, they estimate 100 billion people lived on earth and they said, 
probably half of those people who have died of malaria. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. They're estimating. But what it does demonstrate is that that pestilence has had a major effect on the world. And, of course, you have earthquakes. Those have always existed. You know, they exist all over the world. The difference is we hear all these things we hear about now. Whereas before, you know, when Mount Vesuvius erupted in Italy, you know, Pompeii was covered in, in ash and nobody, nobody, nobody heard about it for months and months probably. But we hear about everything so quickly. And the Lord describes these as the beginning of sorrows. Now, why is it important that we understand that these are conditions? Because conditions can, can, these kinds of conditions and these kinds of events have been happening forever. But the Lord describes them as on the increase, right? As His coming approaches. These are conditions that, that start to be more prevalent. These are general conditions that are like repeating circumstances that start to increase in a noticeable way. And we're start, we start to become, become aware of this increase, but this is not a speci- it's not real specific, but you can tell the conditions are changing. You can tell these things are happening more frequently perhaps. Maybe we're more aware of them or whatnot. So as time passes, these conditions start to be noticed. Whereas a sign is something... It's usually a single thing, and it's, it signals that that thing is imminent. It's about to happen now. That's what a sign is. That's the difference. Okay? So these, the Lord describes in the, this section called the beginning of sorrows. In this section we read about that says, uh, Take heed that no man deceive you. He starts, he begins by describing this period of time in which over time, these conditions start to appear more frequently, more noticeably. And over time, we look at this. Remember, the whole reason the Lord is giving, giving this uh, commentary of what He said earlier. Remember, He spoke to the multitudes and said one thing, but then this conversation that we're reading now is a private conversation where the Lord is explaining Himself. And in this private conversation, he's revealing to the disciples some of the conditions that will lead up to his return, his second coming. Remember, he hasn't died the first time yet. So these conditions persist. The Lord is telling us this so that we are aware of these conditions. But this is not the only place in the Bible that describes these kinds of conditions. So let's look at the book of 2 Timothy. Second Timothy. <clears throat> now the Lord describes the conditions we just read: deception, famine, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, pestilence. The Lord described those as the beginning of sorrows that would lead up to what's called the Great Tribulation. That's his word. Right before his coming. Now in Second Timothy chapter number three. Look at these words. These are also general conditions. But notice the time words. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now let me ask you a question. These perilous times, Paul's the writer here, of course, have these perilous times come at during the writing of this book? Based upon verse 1. Have they come yet? No. These are future. Again, context. Exactly. The future word. Last days. Okay, these are, these are the final days. We get, we get the word eschatology. Eschatology comes from the word last. That's what the word, the Greek word for last is the word that we get eschatology from. These are the days leading up to, not yet contemporary with Paul, but leading up to the coming of the Lord. Now notice this description. For men, first of all, let me explain the word perilous. All right, perilous just means fraught with peril. Peril, I looked it up. Peril means the position or condition of being imminently exposed to the chance of injury, loss, or destruction. It is risk, jeopardy, or danger. So perilous times refers to dangerous times. Dangerous times. Now this is not necessarily referring, if you read this description, this is not necessarily a description of physical danger. But oh great, there is great spiritual danger here. Alright? Let's, let's read verse number 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. That means to speak against God, right? Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, Incontinent. Incontinent simply means they're incapable of self-control. They have no temperance in their life. They have no way. They, they, they just throw themselves at every desire that they have without any restraint. Fierce. Despisers of those that are good. Traitors. Heady. That, heady means simply arrogant. High-minded. High-mindedness, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. So this is God's description of the moral state of men in the days leading up to His coming. Right? Everybody agree with that from the context? It's important that we all get that. But again, these are not, I mean, look, have people not been proud since God, since Adam and Eve fell in the garden? Yes. Have people not hated one another? Yes. Have people not been traitor? Yes. So you see what I'm saying? The difference between a condition and a sign. Men have always been this way. But this is a describing an increase and a no, how noticeable the, these moral and spiritual conditions are becoming as you approach the coming of the Lord. So basically, I divided this group up in essentially three things. There's a, an obsession. Number one is an obsession with self. 
Look at that. It says, heady, high-minded. And they mention in this, these verses, proud, uh, boasters. They're given to pleasures, more, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. An obsession with one's self, one's opinions, one's beliefs, one's pleasure, one's rights. Those things, this is, that's one of the ways you could describe this list. Second thing in this list is pride. And pride comes up a number of times. Heady, high-minded, arrogant. And what does that come down to? That, that comes down to someone who believes that their opinion is right at all times. And they are beyond correction or any other point of view. That's what it means to be conceited, to be wise in one's own conceit. And that, I think that goes back to the idea of disobedience to parents. Because when someone is arrogant and proud and they're wise in their own conceits, in other words, they view their opinion and their wisdom and their understanding of a matter as true and correct, absolutely. And therefore, they are above the wisdom of their parents. They have no need whatsoever to listen to the wisdom of those that came before them or experience of the, those that came before them. That is a description of the, the pride being described here. That, I think that's why it's actually connected with the parents. And then, of course, the third thing is direct and intentional opposition to good. And that's actually the word uses despises of those that are good. So it's not only pride, not only self, but then there is a hatred for that which is good and holy. And again, going back, let me just add another thing to that. Going back to the idea of, of uh, pride, why would you give thanks? It says unthankful, right? Why would you give thanks if you're self-made, Right? You, why would you give thanks? Why would you acknowledge those that came before you or good done to you if, it's, if everything that has come in your life is a direct result of your own ingenuity, your own, your own power, your own wisdom? Now, I don't know about you, and I can't say this definitively because I don't know when the Lord's returning. But this sounds to me like a very clear description of the world in which we live, right? Now, I want to say something here. People writing me while I'm at church. <laughs> the reality is this. The world in which we live is very small. When we look at these conditions and we compare them to our society we're comparing it to a very small subset of humanity, right? I mean, that says nothing of the people in China or Korea or Cambodia or Japan or Saudi Arabia or Bulgaria or Germany or anywhere in Africa, Uganda or Ghana or Cameroon or whatever. We are looking at a very small kind of slice of humanity, and we're looking at it, we're saying, man, that sounds just like everybody I hear about, right? Well, you got to remember that, you got to remember that, that fact, that we're, you know, these are, this is a description of men, 
but we're only looking at a small group. So it might, it might or might not be true with other people, okay? But there's another point you got to think about, which is this. If you go back to the nation of Israel, you think about all the nations like Egypt and Syria and Edom and the Midianites and the Philistines and various other groups that, various other nations that afflicted Israel. You think of the Amalekites and all these nations you've heard of. You know, a lot of those nations were just puny nothing nations. But you know why they're in the Bible? Because of their relationship to God's people. And so we get this idea that those, they weren't. They were actually, I mean, there are some exceptions like Babylon and Assyria and Egypt. Those were large nations. But generally speaking, a lot of the nations that had association with Israel uh, were smaller, insignificant nations, but, but God put them in his word because of their association with Israel. So his prophetic timeline, and this is the principle, his prophetic timeline dealt with his people, Okay. And so he mentioned things, you know, there was a, was there not an entire, uh, an entire like imperial kingdom going on in Mongolia? Not a word of it is mentioned in the Bible anywhere. There were whole civilizations in South America, North America happening. There's ruins of them. Not a word in the Bible is mentioned. Why? Because there's no relationship to his people. And that's, but that's how God deals with things, deals with things prophetically. Therefore, we look at these conditions, and these conditions may or may not be present in China or in Uganda. But in, in the places where God's people are, these conditions persist. Uh, remember, this is written to God's people. So these are conditions that, that God is telling His people that are going to exist and will be observable. And they will increase as the coming of the Lord approaches. But here's a major thing I want you to see here. Look at verse 5. These conditions are not just sinful, merely sinful behavior. Verse 5 tells us that the condition of man at this time, before the coming of the Lord, it says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That means with all these wicked things, these wicked conditions that are growing and increasing and becoming more, more, uh, more frequent, there's a veneer of spirituality and religion to them. That is notable. This is not just secular. This is not just, uh, this is not just the world being the world. No, these things are increasing, but they're increasing in people who profess to be religious and spiritual. That's what verse 5 tells us. And that is kind of different. You know, there was a time, at least in our country, where the ideas of chivalry and humility and honor mattered, right? When parents were highly revered and those that came before us were highly revered. I mean, this goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not a new thing. But in our time, we see that actually dwindling. Those things are dying out. Those things that have been established, those virtues that have been established are dying. We're watching it. And generations that are coming up have no value system like that. That's these conditions. Again, they're not specific. They're general, but they're on the increase. 
And I think all of us that take an honest look at this see this, right? Now, these conditions persist among religious people. That's just remarkable to me. That means people in churches have these conditions. That means they think they're doing right. They have a veneer of righteousness. Not only that, look at verse 13. But evil, remember, speaking from the time of Paul, he's speaking of the future, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is, this is spiritual deception. This is false teaching. So here's what I want you to see from this. Religious conditions will worsen also. As the coming of the Lord draws near, this is not just society. Religious conditions deteriorate also. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. What's it say? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. These are people that heard the truth and have now turned away from it to seek after people that are going to say what they want to hear. That's religious people. This is not a description of the world. This is a description of the religious world. And they're turning from the truth. False teaching is going to increase. And I'm, I'm... I'm out of time. There's, there's more I want to say on this matter. But just suffice it to say this. The first, thing we, the, the first point that I want you to get before we get into the other verses I want to look at is both in Matthew and in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. What do you see? As the coming of the Lord approaches, God says very plainly that the conditions, the moral and spiritual conditions as that coming approaches are going to degrade and the religious world will be no better. The religious world will observably deteriorate. Right? That's what he's saying. Evil men and shall wax worse and worse. They will not endure sound doctrine. Itching ears. The Lord says, before the coming of the Lord, that's going to happen. So what, shall we, what should we expect? We should expect that the conditions that we observe now and we read in this, these passages will persist and increase before the coming of the Lord. So this idea that there's going to come a, you know, an ushering in of the kingdom and there's going to be a new dawn and everything's going to be great, like sometimes the, the political viewpoint sometimes is, is not scriptural. These things are going to get worse and God has told us I know that's a dreary point to end on. The Lord does tell us in these passages what our response to that reality will be. But listen, that is the world in which we live. That is the world in which we live. And that's going to persist. The Lord has told us. The Lord has told us. So we'll have to pick up there uh, next week, Lord willing. Let's pray.